Amen. Please turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Genesis chapter number 16. Genesis 16 this morning. Last year, when we began our biographical study of the life of Abram, that is just a few weeks ago, that is a few chapters ago, I warned us of the roller coaster of faith and failure that we would discover in Abram's life. At times, Abram's faith was white hot. He dared to walk alone by faith, trusting the promises of God and obeying the commands of God, even when they made no human sense. But then at other times, Abram's faith was stone cold, and he leaned on his own understanding and followed the natural impulses of his flesh. And folks, we identify with that roller coaster ride because at times we too rise to do God's will no matter the cost until we fail to do God's will no matter the reward. And we're frustrated and we ask what's wrong with us and we resolve this new year to do better. But we are no different than Abram and the people of God throughout history and so for that reason it was the Apostle Paul who charged the Colossians as you Therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord. That is by faith. So walk in Him. And we begin by faith. And like Abram, our faith is credited to us for righteousness. That is our position. But then, in the practice of our faith, we must walk by faith each day, acting and reacting to God's Word, not according to the highs and the lows of our mood swings. If or when we lean, on our own understanding, we pervert, that is we corrupt or we twist the life of faith as Abram did before us here in Genesis 16. From Genesis 16, I've titled our study this morning, Abram and the Perversion of Faith. Let me pause for prayer and then we'll look at the scripture together. God in heaven, we thank you so much for the truths that we sang this morning about your faithfulness to us, about your care for us, about your character in the year 2022 and now in the year 2023. You are our hope, our sure and steady anchor. God, I pray that you would help us to resolve this new year to walk each and every day by faith, trusting in your promises, obeying your commands without twisting or corrupting or perverting your will. I pray, God, that you'd go before us now as we study the Holy Scripture. I pray that your Holy Spirit might be our teacher, that he might illumine the Scripture text to us so that we might understand the things that we read and that we might make application for our lives today, this week, this year. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Folks, there are so many times in life that we know what God has said and we believe what God has said, but because we can't see the end of all of God's promises, our senses argue with our faith and our senses twist our faith to accomplish God's will our way. 
James says that this double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, and that describes Abram here in Genesis 16. In Genesis 16, Abram demonstrated the danger of a double mind, the danger of a double mind. Look at chapter 16, Genesis 16, verse number one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. What is the Bible telling us here at at this point? God had promised Abram and Sarai a family back in chapter 12 and chapter 15, a large family with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Yet Sarah is barren now in chapter 16, verse 1. She has borne no child. This is the problem of unseen results. Unseen results. And the problem for us who walk by sight is that we like to see results. We want to see progress. We want to measure outcomes. And we say, the proof is in the pudding. I'll believe it when I see it. That's what the life of sight walking looks like rather than the life of faith walking. And for Abram and Sarai, the problem was there were no results in sight. There was no son to be seen. Son, S-O-N, that is. There was no child that they could see. And folks, many times we find ourselves in the very same situation. God has promised to hear our prayers and to answer our prayers, but we pray and pray and pray. All year last year we prayed, and there's nothing to show for it. There's no answer. Nothing seems to happen. We share the gospel with a family member year after year after year, maybe a friend for years, and nothing has changed. Maybe you've been looking for a new job for months. Nothing has materialized. For generations, we've been waiting for the rapture of the church. And each new year, we think perhaps this is the year that Jesus will return to snatch and catch up his bride away and to to take us to himself. But is it ever going to happen? Another year has passed. And God seems silent or his word seems broken. And while we trust his promises, we say we trust his promises, there's really nothing to show for it. And so we have a problem the problem of unseen results. And what do we do when we have a problem? We want to fix the problem. Look at chapter 16, verse one again. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarah's problem in verse one was answered by Sarai in verses two and three. I I call this the proposal of a human solution. The proposal of a human solution. The fix-it solution or the proposal came from Sarai. If now, after upwards of 10 years they had been in Canaan, Sarai was unable to have children, then there would have to be a surrogate to fulfill God's promise. And the solution to the problem included Sarai's Egyptian maidservant, Hagar. Now, Hagar, in all probability, became part of Abraham's household during Abram's disastrous journey down to Egypt back in chapter 12. 
Because according to verse number one, and also there, verse number three, Hagar was an Egyptian. It's probable that Hagar became part of Abram's family in that journey down to Egypt. And although Abram got out of Egypt, it's harder to get Egypt out of Abram. Of course, we recognize Egypt being a picture of the world throughout the scripture. And when the world is present with us and among us, it somehow presents us with alternatives to what is right. It perverts our thinking. So with Sarah's, Sarai's barrenness, Abram and Sarai began to reason. We trust the promise of God to give us a son, but does that son, that seed, have to come from Sarai? Maybe there is another way to work God's will. This is their thinking, and so this proposal is presented. Now, this proposal of a, of a human solution was consistent with the conventional wisdom of the day. According to the Hammurabi Code, the most civilized and progressive and, and decent law code to date, it would be in order for Abram to have a child by Hagar and then for Sarah to legally claim the baby as her own. Sarai could bear children by proxy, if you will, or with a surrogate, so to speak. But folks, the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither can it be, Romans 8, verse number 7. And so the proposed solution, while it may have made human sense, came at a great price. And I would offer you the price of walking in the flesh, thinking in the flesh, living in the flesh. Look at verse number 4. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived... Her mistress, Sarai, became despised in Hagar's eyes. She despised Hagar. I think the ESV says when she saw she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarai. So what was the price of these things? The blessing of harmony in Abram's home was gone. And it would be years. In fact, it would be for all of history. There would be conflict between Hagar's son, Ishmael, and Sarai's future son, now of course we know as Isaac. And that conflict exists to this day. It is the conflict between the Jew and the Arab. More of that in, in just a moment. But how many times do we hear the word of God and we trust and believe the word of God, but we're not prepared to wait for the will of God? So many times the Bible calls us to wait on the Lord. And yet we jump the gun and we put the cart in front of the horse and we settle for less than God's best because although we trust his will, we cannot wait for his will. And we pay a terrible price when we take matters into our own hands, which is what I'm calling here the perversion of faith. Abram's error simply wasn't his immorality. It wasn't simply his adultery in, in fathering a child by Hagar. It was the perverting of his faith, and, and by that I mean the twisting of his trust. He believed the promises of God to him. In fact, it was credited to him for righteousness back in chapter 15, verse number six, but he now tries to accomplish God's will his own way. Notice what I've written there at the top of your notes. The perversion of faith is trusting God's promises, but trying to accomplish those promises our own way. 
And so folks, there is danger here in our double mind. We know the word of God. We believe and trust the word of God. We, we by faith declare the word of God. But then at the same time, we try to accomplish his word, his will, our own way. Secondly, now there's the danger of a deceitful heart. The danger of a deceitful heart. Verses five and six, then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now, consider this. When Sarai made the offer of Hagar to Abram, that's back in verse number two, I'm sure that Sarai thought she was being unselfish and self-sacrificing for the cause. But her heart was deceitful. What she thought would bring fulfillment and joy and the answer to God's promises only brought guilt and shame and resentment and bitterness and strife, you name it. This was the very same deception that Eve suffered in the Garden of Eden. The fruit looked so good, it was pleasant to the eyes. The promise was that it would make her wise. And yet you know the rest of the story. And folks, we can mark it down. We cannot trust our own hearts. And when someone else tells us to follow our heart or trust our heart, don't listen to them. Don't listen to your heart because our hearts are deceitful. Above all things, they are desperately wicked. Who can know it? Not even ourselves. Sarai's deceitful heart here in the confusion of this double mind, it's revealed in a couple ways. First, I would offer you revealed by her tongue revealed by her tongue there in verse number five. Now look at what Sarah says in verse number five and compare it to what she said back in verse number two. Verse two and verse number five. Okay, in verse two, this entire plan was Sarai's idea in the first place, verse two. Now she's blaming Abram in verse number five. It's not easy to explain, but it's like the the note a young fellow received from his girlfriend. Here's what she wrote. Dear John, I hope you're still not angry with me. I want to explain that I was really joking when I told you I didn't mean what I said about reconsidering my decision not to change my mind. Please believe me, I really mean this love, Susie. You say, what? Run that by me again. Dear John, I hope you're not, still not angry with me. I want to explain that I was really joking when I told you I didn't mean what I said about reconsidering my decision not to change my mind. Please believe me, I really mean this love, Susie. Now, this is not something that's unique to women, whether Sarai or Susie, all right? This is something that is common to all of us when I'm describing here the double-mindedness of the self-deception of our hearts. So out of her heart, Sarai speaks, her mouth speaks, blaming Abram for her idea. Now, no doubt, Abram is to blame. He was the leader of the home. He was responsible for his action. To make matters worse, Abram failed again in the leadership of his own home. He told Sarai to do to Hagar as she pleased. Verse number six, so Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So here, Sarai's deceitful heart is not only revealed by her tongue, but also, let her be, by her temper. 
She deals harshly with Hagar, and Sarai vented her anger on Hagar. And, and, and this, again, is confusing to us because this is the Sarai that we uphold as a model of womanhood. Is this Sarai, later Sarah, this resentful, mean-spirited, tyrannical Sarai, the modest, loving, faithful, submissive wife that we thought we knew? Such is the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Had Abram threatened to leave Sarai? No. Had someone stolen all of her jewelry? No. Had her favorite camel become sickened and died? No. (laughs) What was it? Sarai felt guilty and shamed and jealous and bitter over the birth of a child to Hagar, and she revealed the reality of her heart by her temper and her mistreatment of of Hagar there in verse number six. Now, the end of verse six, notice that Hagar ran away. You can't hardly blame her at all. After all, Abram, the man of God, did the natural thing in having a child with Hagar. Sarah, the the mistress, did the natural thing in resenting Hagar. So Hagar, the maidservant, did the natural thing and ran away, escaping the grief and the harassment of Sarai. Folks, listen to me carefully here now. The tests of life are divine opportunities for us as as children of God to act spiritually instead of naturally. To walk in the spirit, to not walk in the flesh. And whether it is a matter of your health or your money or your family or your work, do not follow the natural inclination of your heart for you will crash and burn. Rather, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That ought to be your resolution this year. I won't do what's natural. I will do what is spiritual. I won't do what is natural. I'll do what is supernatural by faith in God above. There is the deception of a deceit, I'm sorry, the danger of a deceitful heart. Number three, there is the danger of a disillusioned will. The danger of a disillusioned will. Hagar, the Egyptian, fled. But where did she go? Verse number seven explains that she had gone to the wilderness of Shur. Do you see it there in verse seven? Now where in the world is the wilderness of Shur? It is the frontiers of Egypt. You see, Hagar went back to Egypt where she was from because going back to Egypt was the natural thing for Hagar to do. And that's not unexpected because when we are hurt or wronged or angry or hopeless, we default in the same way. We get disillusioned about the circumstances of life and we often turn and return to a place that is void of God and his word. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe it's a previous relationship. Perhaps it's just that old place that we return to. 
And we're disillusioned in our mind and our heart and our will determines I am no longer going to remain, but I'm going to flee and I'm going to run the danger of a disillusioned will. Folks, here's what's so sad about this account. What's so sad here is that Abram and Sarah had a golden opportunity to teach Hagar, the Egyptian, about the true and living God and to lead her in the way everlasting. Abram and Sarah had a golden opportunity to demonstrate or to model for Hagar the life of faith in their home and their family. But instead, in the end, she fled from that home, filled with the thoughts of the treatment she had received. She was sinfully used by Abram and Sarai to have a baby. She was harshly treated by Sarai and let go by Abram. And let me tell you, folks, Hagar had a bad impression about God. And that ought to make us angry. And that ought to have made Abram and Sarai angry. They squandered and wasted that opportunity, leaving Hagar disillusioned about Almighty God. And I wonder how many times that people have been disillusioned about God because of us. What of our verbal or our visible temper? What of our hypocrisy? What of our unethical compromise at work? Or what of our sin? And no wonder some reject the gospel. Because if that's our God, people want no part of him. There's a danger of a disillusioned will, as was evidenced in, in Hagar, but I'm, I'm so glad the story's not over. Verse number seven, follow as I read. Now the angel of the Lord, of Yahweh, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. This is the wilderness of Shur, by the spring on the way to Shur. This is just the, the outskirts of Egypt. And he said, the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. I would suggest letter A, God's revelation to Hagar. I love the fact that God found Hagar in the wilderness, in the desert, in the middle of nowhere outside of Egypt. She was abandoned and she's lonely and there is nowhere that you can go that God cannot meet you there. What does this reveal to us about God? God's revelation to Hagar is that God is omnipresent. Psalm 139 puts it in the rhetorical. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. This is the omnipresence of God. He meets her there in the wilderness of Shur, and the omnipresence of God is not a threat to us. It's a comfort to us. You may be far from home this morning. You may be lost and wandering, rejected and dejected. I declare to you that God is with you. His promise is to never leave you nor forsake you. His promise is to be with you to the end of the age. God revealed the omnipresence 
to, to Hagar, but there's more revealed about the character of God. And, and perhaps you just want to jot these there in the margin. It's not only the omnipresence, it's also his omnipotence. His omnipotence. Isaiah 51, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, no matter where you are, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. There is nothing that you can do that is outside the limits or the reach of God's rescue. Also, Second Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world, the whole earth, to show himself strong, strong. He's, he's omnipotent, omnipresent. He's omnipotent. If you're at the end of your rope and you think that all is lost, know that God is able. He is powerful enough, all-powerful, to enter Veen. You say, Pastor Ben, I appreciate that, but you don't know my circumstance. It's really an impossible situation. Yeah. God can do the impossible because he's omnipotent. His omnipresence, his omnipotence. Look at verse 13. There's something else about God that is revealed. Hagar declares God to be the one who sees You see it there in verse 13? He sees. That is, he's watching. That is, he knows. This is God's omniscience. His omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience. And the angel of the Lord met Hagar and calls her by name. God saw her and knew her name. Now, realize that Hagar was not seeking God. She was fleeing from God. She was fleeing to Egypt. Realize that Hagar wasn't the heir of a promise. She was a fugitive without a home. Realize that Hagar wasn't a saint. She was a sinner. Hagar wasn't a person of high rank. She was a slave, yet God knew her name because he's omniscient. He knows you. He knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows your circumstance. And it's remarkable to me that God revealed himself to Hagar. This this first appearance of the Jehovah angel in, in all of the Bible did not come to Abram, but to Hagar. And this is what we call a theophany or a Christophany. It's an angelic appearance of the pre incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, this was the revelation of God to Hagar, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience. What grace, what grace to a hurting woman. See, don't ever think for a moment that God's grace is only found in the New Testament. God's grace is everywhere through the Old Testament as well. Let's finish verse 13. Then she called the name of of the Lord who spoke to her, Yahweh, who spoke to her. You are the God who sees is the English translation, for she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? The one who sees me has been revealed to me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let me give you Hagar's reaction to God, let her be. Hagar's reaction to the revelation of God was audible. 
She declared, she confessed with her mouth the Lord who had revealed himself to her. She called him the God who sees. The place was at a well, a well of water, of course. In the wilderness, that's where you would, you would go for the, the necessity of water, the well of the one who sees me. But then her reaction it was not just verbal or audible. She didn't simply confess the one who had revealed himself to her. What did she do? She obeyed. Her reaction was active. She returned to Abram's household as God had commanded her, submitting herself to Sarai. When the baby was born, he was named Ishmael, and we know the rest of the story. Hagar's son Ishmael would be the father of a great tribe of wild people, I think we, we read there in verses 11 and in verse 12. Hostile tribe of of people living in the Arabian desert. You can read about it in chapter 25, verses 12 to 18. Ishmael was not the promised seed, but rather he would be against the promised seed. It was Joseph, Sarai's great-grandson, who would be sold as a slave in Egypt by the Ishmaelites. And to this day, folks, in the year 2023, the Ishmaelites or the Arab nations are yet hostile and at war with the Jew. So what is the charge for us today? So we begin this new year. The life of faith is a life of waiting for God to act when we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. Every time the calendar turns to a new year, I get a desire to be proactive in life. You get a desire to, to make resolutions. Things are gonna be different this year. We're gonna accomplish something for God, for ourselves. But when we try to intervene in the flesh, we pervert the faith that we profess. If you need to make a New Year's resolution this year, resolve this, resolve Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 to trust in the Lord with all your heart. It's a deceitful heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and let him direct your paths. God's ways don't always make sense, and God's timing doesn't always make sense, but when we take over, we will err when we walk by sight and not by faith. When we think of accomplishing God's will our own way, That is the perversion of our faith. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven above, we pray, we ask in Jesus' name this morning that you will help us to walk by faith this year. Not by sight. Not manipulating or manufacturing circumstances to accomplish what's right in the wrong way. Lord, may we be patient. May we we wait Lord, may we practice the faith that we profess, trusting the eternal wisdom of our almighty God. Thank you, Lord, for the scripture that instructs us. It was written for our learning that we might take heed to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.